his friend, he starts yelling, suck my dick at the cops. Not nice, not illegal. Uh, yes. Right? Uh, and when the cops turned back from his van, went all the way back up the, the little hill to this kid and grabbed him by the back of the neck, threw him down, and arrested him as well. What up, world? Welcome to another episode of the Amer Podcast. Today is June 11th, Thursday, 2020. Uh, we have a very special guest, a photographer with us from New York, Hillary Ford. Hello. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. Also with us in uh, California is John Anderson. What up? Yeah, I have moved to California. <laughs> Surprise, everybody. <laughs> oh, sorry. Colorado. <laughs> also with us in Colorado. I was looking at Tyler when I said And uh, Tyler Grillo out in California. No, he's in Colorado. Yeah, yeah, We're no, transferring the bit right. now. That's how it works. Because messing, messing with my migraine head already. Yeah. Let's see how it is. All right, uh, so today we are going to have a nice conversation with Hillary, who's been active out there with the protests in New York, on the ground, literally, and um, she's got a great, great Instagram feed for y'all to check out, and uh, I'm, I'm your host today, Blake Mannion. Guardrails. Guardrails light. Minus the Modelo, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Hillary, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Just like the nutshell elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. I Tillery in 140 characters or less. Well, um, I grew up in Wyoming. Um, and I met Tyler. Mountain people. What? So mountain people. Mountain people. Yeah. I grew up um, in Jackson Hole. So ultra privileged uh, white girl here. Um, <laughs> and I met Tyler when we went to Sarah Lawrence together in New York. And I studied, mostly studied international development uh, and politics there. And I left after I graduated and spent a number of years uh, working in Southeast Asia um, on human rights and democratic reform governance issues. Went to grad school in London and then after a stint in Oklahoma with my family, I moved back to New York. Um, and so, yeah, I've been here for the past four years, three, four years. Has it really been that long? I can't believe that. How long? I mean, you guys had wow. just moved to, to San Francisco, hadn't you? Like before? Ooh, yeah, that before. was five years ago. Yeah, that was a while ago. Wow. Wild times. Hillary, we're all... What? I mean, I don't fucking know, yeah. Would you consider yourself an activist? Um, hmm. I mean, yes. Cool. I mean, I think think of... You're an activist when you're engaging in activism, right? Um, (laughs) That's how it works. So, I mean, right now, I I definitely am. I would like to think that on a day-to-day basis, I'm engaged in topical issues and I, I try to be conscious in my day-to-day life and and how I'm impacting the world but I, I mean like I'm, I'm a little hesitant I've I mean over the past couple of weeks I've 
been really lucky to meet some pretty incredible activists who live this day in and day out here. Hillary, tell us a little bit about these activists that you've met. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of been, I, I think part of just being home all this time during coronavirus, I, I'm not always like a huge um, extrovert, but it's, this has been one of the first opportunities to be out and meeting people and talking and, and you, and there's this palpable feeling that everybody has been cooped up and they're so ready to just meet new people and talk and engage. Um, so it's been easier than probably it normally has, but yeah, I met some, some people here. So I live in Brooklyn. I live, um, literally right on the border of Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy. If you're familiar with those areas, um, I live a block off of Atlantic Avenue, which is this big thoroughway that kind of divides them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I met some people, uh, and that's another thing with my camera. It's, um, it's a, it's a way it can be used if you use it sensitively, you know, with sensitivity as an entree to, to meet people and to start conversations but almost as good as a cigarette i mean <laughs> true true that true that <laughs> um, but yeah i got to meet um some people there's a organization here um that put together this peaceful march um through it literally they circle it was, it was just perfect for me they you know started a couple blocks away from me at you know this place called restoration plaza where there's this big community theater. It's where the post office is, Applebee's, our grocery store. But yeah, that's where they started. And then they basically looped all the way around my apartment. It was very convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Activism out the front door. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But yeah, they, um, the people who organized it are long time housing advocates here in Bedside. Mm. And they, yeah, this was, oh man, what day was this? You know, that first weekend, it got so ugly um, and really violent. Yep, yep, that was day two, um, which was honestly, I mean, yeah, I I mean, it was not that big of a deal compared to, to other things that happened, you know, throughout that week, but... It was kind of like a premonition. It was so early on that night, you know, I hobbled home and was like, well, fuck, we're on, we're on day two. And you could tell even before I got home, like this wasn't, this wasn't, this was just going to galvanize people, you know? Do you want to describe a little bit in detail what happened? Yeah. Yeah, Who pushed you? Um, okay. So maybe, maybe I, maybe I should start on the very first day. Um, which was Friday, that would have been May 30th, right? I think. Yeah. I actually kind of fell into it totally by accident. Um, I would have shown up. I would have definitely shown up on my own. I just hadn't been aware that they were organizing George Floyd protests at the Mm -hmm. time. I got, at the moment, right now, I'm nannying in the morning. Um, Part-time, it's been something I've picked up. Uh, you know, cause everybody has to work from home and you know, yeah. these people are losing their minds trying to work from home with a toddler. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So I, I'm doing that in the morning. And so after that I needed to, um, I've been needing new bed sheets 
for months now, <laughs> but been too scared to like actually go inside any stores or anything. So, you know, I decided to go to Target for the first time. And Target, um, do you guys know the Barclays Center? Have you heard about the Barclays Center with mm-hmm. all this going down? It's where the Brooklyn Nets are. It, they just really just finished it in the past year, so the whole plaza is open. Um, but it's across the street from a shopping center, a mall called uh, Atlantic Terminal. This is kind of the the what would you, uh, Tyler? What would you call it? Like the the it's it's where they, all all it's like the Grand Central of Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> it's a much less classy, trashier Grand Central. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I went to to Target and then. Um, I was so annoyed because it was like three o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, staff come up and they're like, we're shutting down, you know? And I didn't ask any questions except like, really? Like, I did, you know, like, <laughs> shit, I got to get my shit and go. Uh, there was going to be an epic line. I thought maybe they were, you know, corporate was demanding a thorough clean or something. I, don't, yeah. <laughs> I thought that's why they were shutting down early. Um, but it wasn't until I got down outside that I, saw, you know, just in the time I'd been in there, um, there had been this whole crowd growing, um, you know, and I started and the, the target employees were all kind of streaming out and they all had this sort of like, not look of terror, but sort of like everybody knew what had happened in Minneapolis with the target getting Mm -hmm. looted, um, right, right there in the thick of it. So, you know, I, I, the look on their faces, it wasn't like terror. It was more like, oh shit, are we going to have a job tomorrow? Sort of look like what? Like a storm's coming. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then I started asking around and found out what was going on, um, you know, because there was already the crowd out front. Um, and when I realized what was going on, I, I had my car parked in a parking garage and it was going <laughs> to cost a bajillion dollars. So I went and got my car, ran home, got my camera. And then when I got back, I got back just in time for when they started cracking down. And I saw all of it, um, from across the street from the Atlantic terminal. And it was fucking ugly. You guys, like it was just chaos. Um, that said, that said, like it, I don't know if you heard about the, the cop car getting firebombed. Um, there's a couple of them, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, not yeah. my pictures. No, that this was different. So okay. what really set things off at Barclays that first night was some dumb 27 year old white chick from the Catskills, of course, <laughs> um, <laughs> firebombed a police van with five police in it. Like it's, oh. a, it's a miracle. Nobody was, was seriously hurt. Um, and then that just kind of triggered this massive, just crackdown. Um, and part of the problem is, um, how it's set up with the roads. They had put up these metal, these gates, you know, protecting the, the, the demonstration and all the police from, you know, spilling out into the street. Um, but when everything just went haywire, people were, you know, being shoved into the gates and it, yeah, and they were being maced, and um, I didn't have a, a perfect view. What I could see was just kind of this explosion of people screaming and yelling and limbs, you know, while they're trying to climb over the, the barriers. Um, 
And then, you know, people were furious, obviously, about that. They had multiple buses, like school bus size, um, DOC uh, vans coming in to pick up all the people they were arresting. I mean, they, oh they, they anticipated this. I, I think as soon as they heard that there was going to be some sort of, you know, solidarity protest at Barclays, like, they had been watching in Minneapolis, and they were like, and we're going to we're going to get all our decks in a row. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, traffic in New York, even during quarantine, getting, you know, those um, giant vans down from, well, I guess they might've been coming down from Kings um, down South towards Red Hook. There's that, that one prison there, but, um, or that's like a County jail. But yeah, they were ready. Like they were ready. Those, those buses rolled in to pick up, the arrestees like that. Um, wow. and people, yeah. So then people started yelling Fort green, Fort green. Um, so Fort green is a neighborhood, um, just kind of North, North East of this whole area. It's a gorgeous neighborhood of old brownstones very gentrified, um, has mm. definitely been a hotbed. I mean, Spike Lee grew up there. So, um, you know, so much of, of his work has been informed by, by his growing up in Fort Greene when it was, um, a very poor black community. And now it's, I mean, like, I don't know what the exact stats are, but like, let's be real, probably 95% white, you know, the top 5% of all New Yorkers, like it's one of those places, but there, there is a big park there, um, where there are often big gatherings of whatever sort, but that's where everybody was going. So I had my camera and I followed everyone there. Um, and then it was, yeah, it was pretty clear as soon as I got there that it was, it was escalating. It was really, really going down. Um, and there were just a couple cop cars, police vans there. Um, you know, people were angry. They were yelling, you know, they were yelling profanities and stuff. And then I don't know. There, was, I don't know if anything in particular sort of triggered where things really flipped and started escalating and people start throwing things at the cops. But, um, yeah, it, it just kind of escalated really, really fast. Um, and yeah, the cops retreated. They straight up peaced out. Um, which I don't blame them. I mean, they were completely surrounded. They were outnumbered. Um, you know, protesters were, you know, yelling, suck my dick. And, you know, and I heard that was very New York. Very New York. (laughs) It is. is. I I have, I have a a side thing that I have to wonder if it's kind of related, um, just recently, but that, that's a tangent. Um, but yeah, that's another podcast as we say on this podcast. (laughs) No, it's actually, it's from, um, just a few months ago. I saw a, a case of police brutality, Broward park, a couple blocks away from me. Oh, whoa. Where a kid, um, 
basically, basically what happened is, in all fairness, there's a lot of gang activity that goes on in this park, so I'm not going to totally say I have no idea why this first kid was arrested. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they probably had a warrant for this kid. But so they arrest this one kid, and then his friend yells at the cops as they're, you know, taking his friend down to the van, handcuffed. He starts yelling, suck my dick, at the cops. Not nice. Not illegal. Uh, yes. Right? <laughs> uh, and when the cops uh, turned back from his van, went all the way back up the, the little hill to this kid um, who had been yelling that sucked my dick at him and grabbed him by the neck of the back of the neck, threw him down, and arrested him as well. Um, and I have wondered. I have no yeah, idea. Right. I haven't it's heard about that at all amongst anybody, but it, I don't know if that's just a popular refrain of protest <laughs> here. Like, I'm not sure, but I have wondered. I, I'm like, is that, is that, does that have something to do with the kid who, you know, was arrested over at Brower Park oh. a few weeks ago? But um, anyways, that was a side Side note. Um, but yeah, things escalated a lot. I th- what you might not have seen, I think Fort Greene is where uh, the police van was set. The first police van was set on fire. And I, I do now think that that was kind of the trigger. I mean, I think when people woke up the next morning and they saw those pictures and they were like, oh, fuck, they actually did that. They actually did yeah. that that's where everybody was like, Oh yeah, it's on. Like it's on. Um, yeah. I think that was kind of the spark, you know, that sort of said to the rest of the city, like, nah, we're going there. Like we're actually going there. <laughs> so has it been like a bunch of different protests? Like I'm curious about the geography. Cause in Denver we have civic, civic, civic center park. Everybody goes there. That's where the protests happen. And then, like, you might march around downtown. But in New York, it's fucking New York, right? So I hadn't even thought about it until you until we were on the phone. And I'm like, okay, what does the geography of this thing look like? Oh, it's literally everywhere. Um, and it's it's totally um, – what, what's the word? I mean, it's, it's – there is no singular organization pulling everything together. Um, it, that's so cool. Protests were, were entirely spontaneous. Um, now you have individual groups who are mobilizing on their own, you know, certain days. They're, you know, there's, uh, there are groups up at, um, in Williamsburg at McCarran Park that have been organizing pretty much every day. Grand Army Plaza is another place where different groups have been, you know, taking the lead every day. But it's happening everywhere. Um, luckily somebody, I mean, that first day, so the, so that first day, um, so the, the first Friday, the police van was lit on fire. Um, I kind of, once the the fire department came and put it out and I got my, (laughs) my money shots, I guess you could say. Um, (laughs) and where can people find these money shots, Hillary? Um, you can find them at uh, hillary.ford.photo on Instagram. Hey. I, would, I would highly, highly recommend everybody check it out. It's one of the best sources to follow what's going on in New York right now. Well, I can, I can definitely um, direct you to some other amazing local photographers as well who I have been privileged to, to meet during all this. Um, 
Yeah, which the following day, actually, when when things got ugly for me, um, I met I met two photographers when we were out and about, and we kind of just stuck together. Um, and yeah, I've gotten to meet other people through that. But yeah, the following is there a whole like subgroup of protesters that are like the photographers? Is that like a subculture of protests? Um, no, I mean I wouldn't say it's kind of um, a protest, but there's definitely a thriving. I mean, actually making it as a photographer is almost impossible um, nowadays, uh, you know, with the proliferation of, of decent digital, you know, photography equipment, it's hard to get anyone to pay for your images. But from that, you do still have this sort of thriving amateur community um, of people who are just really passionate about photography. Um, and especially in New York, they're passionate about New York. So they want to get out, uh, and document whatever's going on. Um, and so you do see people, you do see people around and it's kind of been fun. I keep, um, sort of running into the same sort of people. Um, yeah, it's, it's small, it's a small group here, like locally based, but. So there's, um, I just read this title from the New York times. Uh, it says how the New York protest leaders are taking on the establishment. They're young, charismatic, and drawing crowds of thousands around the city. What's cool is uh, between like that and what you are describing as the scene, the protest scene in New York, it sounds like that perhaps the police departments there are realizing just how easily they can be overwhelmed just because of this like guerrilla tactic and just sheer population density of, mm-hmm. you know, the numbers. Um, sounds like that's kind of coming together uh, there in New York. Who, who are they saying are the, the um, protest leaders? Because honestly, it, overall, it's been a pretty leaderless uh, mm-hmm. situation here. I mean, there are individuals who have stepped up to the plate on, uh, at different sure. demonstrations, but... I mean, there's um, Jamani Williams. The- this is what they're saying. They're saying a former financial advisor, a makeup artist, a college student, all who until the pandemic worked or, you know, had other jobs until the pandemic hit. But over the past two weeks, a mix of newly minted activists and more seasoned hands led protests across New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that sounds pretty accurate. And even more, one thing that's been really kind of inspiring to me is um, that you you see people stepping up in the moment to sort of, you know, galvanize and both galvanize and sort of organize everyone. Um, what was the most inspiring one of those you saw, you think? You got a good example? Well, I would say... Well, example of that specifically, I mean, as, as it's kind of gone on more and more, you're seeing each day is actually sort of, there's somebody behind it. There's somebody organizing it. And those first few days, it was genuinely chaos. Um, you just had these big, massive groups like that first, uh, following morning, um, we knew it was going down in Flatbush. That was about all anybody really knew. Um, like right down at the Prospect Park, um, basically it's the central park of Brooklyn. Flatbush is a predominantly black Afro-Caribbean neighborhood, much like um, 
the one I live in. Um, and so just at the southern corner, southern, southeast corner of Prospect Park is where everybody was meeting. And they were met by massive police uh, confrontations. I mean, I don't, I, you might have seen um, one of my stories. When I got there, I didn't even get there, you know, for the beginning of the demonstration. When I got off the bus and I was walking down, I counted a line of two dozen police vans and cars just flying down. Um, yeah, yeah. And when I got there, it was peaceful. It, I mean, nothing had happened at that point. That was the thing. That was, that's what has been frustrating is, like, did they want, I mean, there was the sense that they, they wanted to just flex their muscles, you know? I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing, you know, if they had kind of rolled in like that, if the situation was in fact escalating and, you know, it still wouldn't have been okay. Everybody still would have been angry, but it would have had some contextual logic to it, I guess, you know, but they were flying in, um, guns loaded with zero, uh, provocation. Um, but yeah, yeah, so, but then after that, so when they showed up down in Flatbush, everybody just kind of splintered. Um, so these different groups just started marching in different directions. Um, with no real aim, everybody was kind of like, we're going to make our way back to Barclays. We're going to get back that direction somehow, you know, and the cops would show up, you know, a big group would start marching, you know, five blocks down, the cops would catch up with them and decide they couldn't keep going that way. So they would just turn and go the next block and the other way. And what was really kind of amazing in that moment. So I kind of got separated I was trying to figure out where people were going because there was no information. There was no way to really follow. You could follow the co- helicopters in the sky. They were hovering. So you could kind of like wow. see where they were and kind of move that direction. But um, so I hopped on the subway and decided to head back up to Barclays and see what was going down there. And the groups hadn't quite made it there yet. Um, so I just started walking. I ended up at the Apple store which is where I met these two other photographers. It was, well, basically what happened is I was at Barclays and I saw another line of like a dozen like sirens blaring cop cars heading up Flatbush Avenue. And I was like, okay, that's where shit's going down. Gotta follow the cops. <laughs> like that's been another way you can like helicopters, cop cars going by. Okay. That's where I should go. Um, so yeah, turns out they were going to protect the Apple store. <laughs> Mm. As you do. Uh, as, yeah, you do. as you do in America. Priorities, capitalism. I yeah. have to protect the Apple store just in case. Um, and so I met these two <laughs> other uh, photographers there. They had the same idea. They were cracking up. They were like, this is it. Like, <laughs> like, um, oh and God. then, you know, we started wandering around together trying to figure out where to go. I finally met up with another group. And that's where I saw um, people were just stepping up to ensure that it was moving along peacefully. Um, in Cobble Hill specifically, you had these, um, you know, young people. I actually ran into one of the guys who had really stepped up when I had gotten there that night. I ran into him again a few days ago, late at night when we were marching down Atlantic and I stopped him and I was like, I don't expect you to recognize me, but I recognize you. 
because you were right up there talking with the police, trying to make sure we all stayed safe and everything was peaceful, you know, up until we got hurt. And I, I remember you and I'm thankful that you were doing that. Um, yeah, they, people were just stepping up and, you know, if, if somebody chucked a water bottle over the crowd, you know, the crowd was self-regulating in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Uh, yeah, but then what keeps happening is you have these different marches from different places and then they try to converge at some point. Um, and then it gets big. And what has been the trend is everybody converges on one of the big bridges, either Brooklyn bridge or the Manhattan bridge going into the city. Interesting. And when you shut down the bridge, you shut shit down. Um, yeah, yeah. is that the point of going to the bridge is to, uh, do a specific action there? To shut it down and shut everything down. Yeah, I mean, I get. I mean, to be totally honest, at times I think I I don't know if there was that much thought process put into. It. I mean, you just had <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people on the street marching, and you're like, "Well, shit, where else do we go? You know, like let's take yeah. Manhattan. You know, that's kind <laughs> of how it's it's operated. I'm not sure if there was anybody who sat down those first few days and was like. You know, well, if we shut down yeah. the bridges, they're going to have to listen to us. It was just this sort of visceral <laughs> mass reaction and people just headed towards the bridges. I feel like that's what's interesting about the new, because this is happening. I wonder where else is happening, but it's happening here also in Oakland. The, the galvanization of this moment of seasoned activists with also like new activists. Like there was these two um, uh, students at Oakland Tech who organized a protest of 15,000 people. They've never done it. They've never organized anything before. And they organized 15,000 people to show up. So I have a, I have a question because, um, you know, we were talking about this new, the kind of new, new activist folks are being politicized in this moment and seasoned activists. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting, now that we're in, you know, what is it? Second week going into third week of these, of this uh, uprising, there's starting to be, I'm finding like local actions, like, right. Like there was like the eight, right. The campaign zero put out, there are certain like more federal things, but then each, you know, all these different places are also having their different kind of pushes on different fronts. Right. Which makes sense. Cause we're the United States where everything is different everywhere. Um, and so like in Seattle, for example, you know, I've seen this, but like Seattle is just like heavy, you know, they have, you have the world trade, uh, protests back and the, you know, so they've created an, an autonomous zone that they have. And it's, it, inside the autonomous zone is the police station. They basically seized a police station. Seriously? And they have an autonomous... Yes. Oh, I haven't heard uh, about this. I've been so yeah. preoccupied here in New York. I haven't heard about this. Oh, I cannot wait to look at this. Yeah. That's right. That happened. That happened, too. On Twitter. And then... Yeah. And then... <laughs> Here in Oakland, I know that one of the fronts they're pushing. We also have, there's also a list of demands. There's an organization here, an access organization called the um, Anti-Police Terror Project, um, and they've just been doing this work for a really long time. And so they have like a list of demands. They also have something called the Black New Deal. Um, that's yeah. interesting. But like one other like big immediate push is trying to get um, the Oakland Unified School District to divest um, and defund um, from OPD because they um, Oakland Police Department because you know they they. Um, 
have a contract with them. Yeah, they have a contract with them for students. So that's like the next push. And there are certain council members who are blocking it. So the actions have been going and targeting them directly. Also, I think 2,000 people showed up yesterday at our mayor's home personal residence, <laughs> and she did not come out. She did not address the crowd. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm happy with people showing up at his house either. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So my question, Hillary, is like, what are the things happening? Like, what are, if you're, if you're aware of like, what are the, the pushes on the kind of local fronts and New New York, there might be something, I mean, it could be different in parts of Brooklyn versus Manhattan, you know? I mean, overall, I mean, the, the one big uh, success we've had so far is um, that the state legislature has, um, I mean, success, it's not fully repealed yet, but um one of the biggest problems here in New York State uh, was a clause um, 50A. Have you heard about this? Basically um, provided uh, for all police records to be sealed. Um, you have to get a court order to see any uh, disciplinary records. And that was in wow. a clause in the police uh, contract 50A. So that's been a big repeal 50A has been a big push here because there's no real data on, on police misconduct because all these records right. are sealed. Um, and of course, you know, you know, we have these cops who have histories of misconduct one place and, you know, they might be fired and they can move elsewhere uh, and, and join up with different departments. So that's been one major success so far. Um, that's likely to be um, fully repealed. Um, and then, uh, I mean, overall, the push here in New York has been, I mean, because right now, I think, I think right now more than probably anywhere else, obvious, I mean, obviously, we've got these movements all over the country right now. I mean, all over the world. I don't know if you've been following in the UK and Australia. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. It's pretty amazing. But, Berlin. I mean, it's been yeah. bananas. Yeah. Um, but here in New York, considering we've been, I mean, I've been, I mean, the, the, I, the COVID epicenter has been shifting. I think, you know, Brazil might be there, you know, soon, but I mean, right now, New York remains not just the U S New York, New York City yeah. remains the hardest hit place pretty much in the world right now. Um, it's likely to be overtaken as, as COVID really t- picks up in um, the global south and developing countries for sure. But um, it's been devastating here um, economically, socially. Um, so, so much of what we're we're focused on here is tied into the ramifications of the pandemic in one way or another. Um, and so we're, we're going to be facing catastrophic budget shortfalls because of the pandemic. Right. Um, I mean, obviously funds had to be, uh, diverted during the pandemic and then also you know we haven't been collecting tax revenue and tourism what tourism this summer you know (laughs) that's there's just it's gonna be bad to put it simply um you know and they've been talking about the budget shortfall since you know (laughs) since a few weeks into the shutdown really 
you know, and some of the first things that they started talking about nixing from the budget, you know, were, were social programs like that are, are critical to communities. Like one of the most contentious ones has been, um, you know, they were going to cut the summer youth employment program or different, um, city agencies and, um, and nonprofits that have partnerships with the city take on, uh, high school students, high school and college students, um, for paid summer jobs. Um, and you know, that's been a, a very, very popular program. Um, I would imagine really beneficial for the community too. Extremely beneficial. I mean, I don't know if, I mean, this is kind of a side thing, but I've thought about a lot lately, lately over the past few years, um, about (laughs) how I, I rarely see young teenagers in employment nowadays. I don't know about Colorado, but like I always had summer jobs. Um, yeah. You know, like, and, and I always had peers who had, you know, instead of doing after school activities, they, you know, chose to work. Um, uh-huh. I had jobs in high school. Yeah. John and I went down the street from each other. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. We actually shared a building because I, oh, no, I guess there's a little alleyway. He, uh, he had a coffee shop and uh, I had scooped ice cream at Baskin Robbins. Nice. Nice. Oh, yeah. My brother scooped ice cream at Hagen Dawes. Hell yeah. yeah. So did Barack Obama. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, that. but the thing that has really struck me, I, I think since I returned to the States really is when it, it, it became noticeable is, um, the problem is those jobs. It's, it's that you have grown adults that need that employment now. Right. Like, like working in the checkout line, we always had teenagers who were ringing people up at the grocery store. Like that was pretty standard, you know, and young kids, like, I don't, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I think for, for, there were specific jobs you could take in Wyoming at 14. And one of them was bagging groceries. We don't even have people bagging groceries anymore, but then you always had young, very young people who were doing the checkout lines too. You don't, see that because those low wage jobs are needed by low income marginalized people who, you know, like that's the job they can get. That's the job they can get. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and by default, that means that there just simply aren't that many paid work opportunities for young adults, for young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so this program was one of the only entrees into, you know, making money for, for, you know, young kids. And it was also especially very popular in neighborhoods like mine, um, you know, because it, it keeps kids off the streets, to be totally honest. Yeah, well, that, that's another thing I was thinking is like, hey, do you want kids to be, to grow up to be responsible adults or do you want kids getting in trouble and like having them have a job is a much better way of making sure that they're responsible adults. Well, and, and right. I, I, I talked about it with um, some of my neighbors right around here. Um, so my neighborhood, I can't quite remember where Tyler lived. I think they were down um, South of prospect park. I yes. I think that, that sounds I think right. That sounds right to me. Yeah. So, I mean like a similar 
area neighborhood that I live in, but, um, different. Um, I know, I know, uh, Will Warren lived, um, right around where I live. So if that adds any context, got it for the listeners, that's another Sarah Lawrence, uh, alumni that we are connected but to kind of like in your crew. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, Crown Heights. I mean, up until quite recently, it's it is rapidly gentrifying. But I mean, if you looked up Crown, if you Googled Crown Heights just a few years ago, um, what you would find is, um, you know, up until very recently, one of the roughest neighborhoods in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the the last major riots in the city, race riots, were in, uh, the early '90s in Crown Heights between the Afro-Caribbean community and the Hasidic Jewish community. Um, Interesting. Yes. Yes. One of the largest uh, Hasidic Jewish uh, populations is in Crown Heights. So there's been, a, a, obviously those are radically different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, That's quite, quite a mix. A mix. Mm-hmm. This is where we have the West Indies day parade, the carnival every year. Okay. Uh, you've seen pictures of, you know, Caribbean carnivals with scantily clad uh, women. And right. It's very boisterous and very drunk, and it goes right <laughs> through the Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. Yeah, New York is New York. But, um, but yeah, there was, uh, last year in particular, there was a huge spike in crime, um, in violent crime. Uh, there were a lot of shootings, um, right around here, mostly young kids. Um, there's, there had been a spike in youth gang activity. Um, but so, you know, talking with my neighbors, like after how rough it was last summer, you know, they were just furious that, you know, one of the only programs that help, you know, keep kids, you know, young teenagers occupied in our area was being nixed. I mean, that's how I heard about it was from, from some of my neighbors. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's so frustrating. It's, it's, we, we do an absolute terrible job of this in the States in that, uh, we always sacrifice short term gains for long term gains. And it's like, you saved how much money on that program? And now how many of those youth are going to end up in jail as opposed to starting a business Mm -hmm. because you decided to nickel and dime us on this budget? Like, like, what are we doing here? We got to invest in these kids, and then they go out and increase our tax revenue and make our uh, societies better instead of being a drain on the society. And it requires just a little bit of investment on the front end. It's bananas to me. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's also, I think a lot of people would look at it as like, you know, would say they're being risk adverse by not putting, you know, by betting on these kids, which is bullshit. Like, you know, would you bet on white suburban kids? Why wouldn't you bet on, you know, these kids in Brooklyn who have everything to fight for? Um, Right. Well, what's the alternative? Just let them go. You can't do that. So, I mean, that's what we're doing right now, but like, that's not a good outcome for anybody. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, there's a sense. I, I mean, moving to this neighborhood, it's been a real learning experience for me. Um, I'd never, I mean, I'd spent all these years living overseas, um, 
but I'd never really had personal experience with black African-American communities in the U.S. I mean, other than, I mean, I can, you know, it was always, I could definitely, you know, in college be like, well, I have a few black friends. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Um, but I grew up in Wyoming, you know, like we had a yeah. substantial Latino population, but, um, you know, I had Very one classmate that was biracial and that was about it. So, yeah. so yeah, it's been, um, yeah. And I knew nothing about Afro-Caribbean culture. So it's been a real learning experience. Um, and, and learning how to navigate these, they're, they're tough, tough dynamics, um, challenging dynamics, uh, being like, I know that I am a part of a wave of displacement here. And I know that that is not my personally, my fault. (laughs) I, you know, these are large systemic issues that, you know, no single person is accountable for. Um, but I mean, the way I see it, I mean, if I've learned anything from all my time living overseas is that when you come in as an outsider, it is on you to get to know the place you're living. Um, and that's something you don't always see, you know, young white gentrifiers doing and not necessarily out of animus, but just this sort of trepidation that, you know, this is a different world that they've stepped into and they, they don't know if people are angry about their presence there. And so they just sort of withdraw, which just adds to this sense of, of disconnect. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, since I've gotten here, I've, I've made a really concerted effort to follow local news, to try to talk to people, you know, neighbors on the street, um, get to know you know, the local business owners, you know, the businesses I, I frequent bodegas and whatnot, but, um, but it's, you know, it's challenging it, that you really have to put yourself out there. Um, and considering how contentious intense, uh, race relations can be right in this neighborhood here. Um, it's not always easy, but that's the work that's, you know, it's incumbent on us to put that work in. Um, Have you found you had any, like, are there any interactions doing that work that really stood out to you, especially like a positive interaction where like you broke through and you were able to like make a real connection with somebody who is very culturally different than you? I mean, honestly, to be totally honest, almost all of my interactions where I put in the effort have been almost universally positive. Um, Awesome which is, um, you know, it's kind of sad. There, there's this general feeling among young white, my, my compadres, my white, uh, gentrifying comrades, uh, who, um, generally feel that we're not welcome here. And, and, and yeah, there are people that, that I think overall there is a, a, sense among the local, um, long-term residents that, you know, you know, that they prefer their fellow long-term residents to us for sure. But they also recognize, you know, that along with this wave of gentrification have come 
new businesses, better access to banking. Um, the food has gotten better, like just the quality of the produce at the grocery stores, you know, like, so these are complex issues. Um, but yeah, there was, I guess one instance, um, uh, late spring last year, there was a fire across the street, um, in a, a building. It's, um, it's not a public housing exactly. It's, um, they're called HDFC co-ops. It's, um, a program here that got people into home ownership in the eighties during the real estate crisis. Um, so they turn these buildings into co-ops, but they're low income co-ops. It's, it's a whole other conversation, but it's a interesting <laughs> program that has a lot of issues, but, um, but yeah, there's a building across the street and I, I mentioned this because I've seen those neighbors across the street. There's a lot of young 20 something kids who, you know, they don't have a backyard in their building. So they hang out on the stoop. It's fucking Brooklyn. That's what people do. Hang out <laughs> right. Right. Streets, right. We've all seen Hey Arnold. I'm I was going to say, stoop kids a thing. <laughs> and Broward Park, the park, right? I learned that on a Tinder date a few years ago. It was an awful date, but he told me that Broward Park was where Hey was where Gerald lived. Gerald lived on oh, Broward right. Park, and I was like, that is awesome. made this entire date and the fact that you forgot to put deodorant on worth it. Um, <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, but these kids, I, I bring them up because, you know, I've seen them harassed by the cops regularly just during quarantine, twice during shutdown. I saw we had, like, multiple cop cars stop to, you know, badger them about. I, I assume, I mean, the first time I asked them and they said, like, you know, they accused us. They accused us of having a party, and we're just sitting here like we always do. Like, you know, like where the fuck else are we supposed to go? Like, you know, yeah. They came back twice, just just harassing these kids on their stoop. Like, this is stuff. Yeah, like, why? Why are you doing that? Social distancing bullshit. I don't know. You know, so what if you know somebody had their car parked out front and they turned on the stereo so they could listen to music while they were there? Like, so what? That's not a fucking party. Um. <laughs> Listeners, you should have you should have seen the expression that Hillary just gave it. Was, it it conveyed the the nonsense of that situation perfectly. Just, I mean, all it takes is is a simple effort to observe what's going around you, and you see this stuff happen around here all the fucking time and it's it's just it's galling i mean and And that's not something you have seen before in the u.s is that right no no that's i mean yeah let's put this in context i have lived in far more difficult places i spent two years in phnom penh cambodia i i spent um i had a stint in nairobi kenya um like you know, like I know shit gets worse. I know shit gets a whole lot worse. Um, right. But it's also part of the reason I came back to the States was like, like I was in Cambodia when Ferguson was going down, um, you know, and it really kind of hit home. I do very much still care about world, you know, issues going on in the developing world. Um, but there's also some really fucked up shit going on here too. Um, yeah. So, and, and gross injustices. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's 
just real. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm not sure. I think a lot of, um, my, my peers, my white peers here maybe have blinders on. Um, I mean, like, I don't know how you don't see this stuff, but then I get, right. I mean, that's going to be really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, are you just and walking down the street? Right. right. That's a lot of the work that we can do too. Right. As white people is be like, bro, did you not even see that? Like, are you serious? Are you not aware of the thing that is happening right now? And that seems to be like the first step to actually getting somebody to where we hope they can get to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. actually having those conversations. Um, yeah. You know, and I don't know how you guys are, are operating, you know, in, in Denver. Um, like you're in Denver too, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah for the most, most. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm in the in mountains, mountains right, right now. now but, yeah. yeah. I mean, having these conversations, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big part of the battle is just getting people to believe this is an issue. Like that's what's infuriating about it. Yeah. I actually got into a big argument with a buddy of mine year and a half ago about systemic racism. And he actually ended up texting me like a week or two ago and was like, I was totally wrong. <laughs> and uh it, i'm first of all blown away to see that text from him um but also it's like damn he had, basically admitted that he really honestly genuinely be- did not believe that it existed um hard for me to understand as you are saying but apparently that is how it is for some people so. And I think this actually illustrates a really good something, really good thing that I learned uh, during the war in Iraq, which was, you know, when Ferguson happened, it was still a little bit taboo to be like Black Lives Matter, especially in certain circles. Like certain circles, people would come at you for that, and it was quote brave to to hold that position. And now, what five six years later, we find that that is the position that we are all coming to. And if you got there in 2014, it would seem that you have a good moral soul. And so if you, and I'm speaking to like listeners now, if you see something wrong, you got to call it out and you have to have faith that somewhere down the line, people are going to see what you're seeing. And then you you have been part of the change and you've been ahead of the curve and that you 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 helped make that happen. So if you're feeling a certain way about your community, about your society, and you are wondering, should I speak up? Is this the right position? You know, uh, are people gonna believe me? Whatever, stop it. Stop worrying about that and speak your truth because we need you to, because it's really important. And you can see over the course of time that it matters and people move their positions and then we make change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, that said, that said, I know, I know how challenging, I mean, I haven't, I haven't lived in, you know, your, your part of the, the world for quite a while now, but I, I mean, like, it's hard when you live in a predominantly white community, um, that doesn't have, I mean, part of, part of where, how I came to where I am in my positions is that it is something I mean, to be clear, I am not personally experiencing 
police brutality. You know, like this is not something that is affecting me on a, on a deeply personal level, but I am observing it in my everyday life. And if you live in a community where it's not something that is on display for you necessarily in, in front of your eyes, especially with, you know, how little trust there is in our mass media right now. Um, it's hard. It's really hard being in, in those sorts of communities, you know, trying to having to take up the mantle to, to fight this fight and convince people of what's going on. Um, you know, it's different. It's different if you're actually seeing it day. And well, and I will say, I I do feel like I have a, a different obligation now um, now that I am somebody who has, I mean, and, and part of what I, I have been doing with going to these protests and, and I, I feel a responsibility to bear witness, um, if I can, uh, as a documentary photographer, um, a big part of that is, is simply being there to bear witness. I also, you know, I'm a body in the crowd and, you know, and, I am not a neutral party. I would not call, you know, I'm wary of ever calling myself. Well, you know, I'm not sure many photojournalists would totally say they're neutral in this either, but you know, there's a, there's a sort of veneer of neutrality. Whereas, you know, I'd rather say I'm a documentary photographer. I know exactly what side I'm on. Like this is, you know, I'm in there chanting with everybody while taking pictures. So, so, you got to say like, I'm uh, what was the line I heard the other day? Uh, I'm I'm defending the Constitution, not a political party. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I really I love the the phrase "bear witness." Like I think that's what, especially as a white person, that's one of the best things that we can do right now. I think, especially if you're like, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea how to think about this. I'm very new to this whole movement. Just just listen show up and listen and see what's around you and let the people who've been there for a really long time lead you yeah yes exactly on that note we are going to pause here take a little break tyler's gotta leave but we will be resuming this conversation on the next episode thanks for joining wants to buy if any media outlets want to buy one of my photos let me know then i can be a photo journalist but definitely say that into a recorder and we will put it on the internet yeah